the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, August 21st, 1911. I'm Sally Helm. You see all kinds of strange things in a big city like Paris. So it's possible this scene didn't look too out of place. A department store employee on a street called Quai de Louvre sees a man hurrying by at 7.30 in the morning. He's carrying a white-wrapped package under his arm, heading for a bridge that crosses the Seine River. And as he's walking, he throws something small and shiny off to the side of the road. The employee looks closer and realizes it's a doorknob. There could be all kinds of explanations for this. This is a Monday morning, and Sunday at this time is a big party night in Paris. So, you know, sometimes people randomly end up carrying doorknobs around after a night on the town. Stranger things have happened. But in fact, the store employee has just witnessed a small part of what will soon become the world's most famous crime. The doorknob comes from an inside door in a small staircase at the Louvre Museum. That museum rises up, fortress-like, right next to this street. And inside the white-wrapped package the man carried is the Mona Lisa. Today, one of the most epic heists in modern history, involving the most famous painting in the world. Why has the Mona Lisa enchanted so many people since the 1500s? And how did a struggling Italian handyman manage to steal it? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. At this very moment, as we record this sentence, the Mona Lisa hangs in the Louvre Museum in Paris in a case that's earthquake-proof, bulletproof, and kept at a cool and consistent 68 degrees Fahrenheit. There's an extra wooden fence in front of it to keep viewers further back. There are guards standing watch. You know, if the world ends, cockroaches in the Mona Lisa will survive. (laughs) (laughs) That's Dr. Noah Charney. He's a professor of art history, and he founded a group called the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art. That's his specialty, art crime. He told us, for most people, the whole art world feels impenetrable and far away, kind of like the Mona Lisa herself behind her guards and her glass. There's a little bit of intimidation to it. It feels somehow elitist. And that might be one reason why stories about art theft and art crime are so fascinating. The idea that these elites are being duped 
it, there's a certain pleasure in that, and you know that that may not be uh, that may not be the the best reason to come to it, but I think these thieves have a Robin Hood vibe to them, at least in the world of fiction and in a handful of these famous cases, including the case of the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is, without a doubt, the most famous painting in the world. It's maybe the most famous visual image in the world. I'm not quite sure what what the rivals are. That's Martin Kemp, Emeritus Professor of Art History at the University of Oxford, a Leonardo da Vinci expert. He's seen the Mona Lisa up close and personal, out of its protective glass case, on more than one occasion. He has also seen it on his feet. Oh, I've got a pair of Mona Lisa socks. I, I use these at literary festivals and uh, it gets things off to a, to a light start. I don't have a Mona Lisa bikini bottom, but some people do. The image of this Renaissance portrait has been printed and reprinted in all kinds of surprising places. It has been the subject of wild myth-making and conspiracy theories. Like, people claim there are letters painted into her eyes. That if you look at the painting just right, you can see a hidden lion's head. That, if you do some complicated numerical analysis relying on the symbolic importance of the number two, you can discern that the painting is actually a painting of Leonardo da Vinci's mother. Perhaps unsurprisingly, when people see the Mona Lisa, they're sometimes disappointed. She looks smaller than they expected. No hidden message is revealed. The description, in a sense, is, seems pretty simple. You've got a woman sitting in a chair. Her face is toward us, her body turned slightly away. She's sitting in a balcony, and as we look past Mona Lisa into the background, we see this landscape. A very remarkable landscape. Mountains, a bridge, a dry brown riverbed. But Kemp told us the painting really does draw you in. It's a picture full of invitations. She looks at you, which is very daring in the Renaissance. Most portraits of women are profiles, because it's it's not good manners for a, a woman to indulge in eye contact with a man unless they're intending something. And she smiles, and that's even more daring. It's the first portrait of a woman who looks at us and smiles. Yet, it's elusive because none of the features are absolutely drawn. There are no rigid edges, which invites us to complete the picture, as it were, the meaning. I think the, the great artists know how to draw you in, but they leave you with some space. Leonardo da Vinci himself has also been a somewhat elusive character. Kemp told us he left records from his life, but not much that was confessional or emotional. We know that he was born in 1452 to a Florentine notary and a peasant mother. He was illegitimate, um, the product of a hot summer's evening in Vinci, which is a a two-horse town. It's not not, not a major place at all. He was brought up in Vinci, hence Leonardo da Vinci. And from an early age, it's clear that he has a brilliant mind. That manifested itself pretty early. And the talent was not just in painting, but in looking. And a lot of art is actually, as an artist will tell you, it's about looking, looking carefully, looking intensively, and looking in ways that other people haven't looked. Over time, da Vinci picks up skills in many disciplines. He's an inventor, a botanist, an anatomist. 
He even studied fossils. And his skill for art becomes legendary. He gets prestigious commissions. He figures out special new painting techniques. Like, he decreases the amount of pigment in his oil paints. Which meant he was laying translucent layers of color over the top of this white background. It's like a a system of very fine sheets of uh, stained glass letting the light through. And it, it has an extraordinary visual effect. And that sort of vibration that the later Leonardos have, they kind of vibrate in the light. Up close, you can see that vibration in the Mona Lisa. Most historians agree that da Vinci had begun working on this painting by the time he was in his 50s. He was already an artistic star. The painting was almost certainly a portrait of the wife of a well-off Florentine merchant. People go through all sorts of gymnastics because they don't want it to be such a boring sitter. You know, they want it to be something extraordinary, a legend, or there must be more to it than this bourgeois woman. But that's probably who it is. Lisa Gherardini, the wife of Francesco del Giacondo. Da Vinci worked on the Mona Lisa over many years. He's a slow painter. Nobody was more perfectionist. He's left Italy by this point and is working in France. And when Da Vinci dies in 1519, La Gioconda, a.k.a. the Mona Lisa, is perched in his studio. Da Vinci was by then a major celebrity. And some of his work, including that little portrait of Lisa Gherardini, ends up in the French royal collection. Over the years, French kings and queens pass the painting down one to another. And the Mona Lisa gathers admirers. French writers talk about her as a sort of femme fatale. King Henry IV considers selling the Mona Lisa, but his courtiers tell him, Don't get rid of it. It's your best painting. His little little picture of of a bourgeois Florentine woman was regarded as his best painting. That's extraordinary. Soon after the Louvre opens as a museum in 1793, the Mona Lisa is transferred there with the rest of the French royal collection. And it hangs in those halls for more than a hundred years, except for a brief stint on the walls of Napoleon's bedroom. Meanwhile, outside the Louvre, Paris grows and changes. Napoleon rises and falls, the Eiffel Tower is built, movies are invented, the Louvre grows to encompass tens of thousands of works of art. And by the early 1900s... This was the place to be if you were an aspiring artist at the time. That's Dr. Noah Charney again. He told us one aspiring artist who moves to Paris in the early 1900s is an Italian amateur painter named Vincenzo Perugia. He was part of an Italian expat community in Paris that was was really quite alienated. Um, There was a good deal of xenophobia, and Italian immigrants were looked down upon and certainly not made to feel welcome by the the elites and institutions like the Louvre in particular. Perugia had grown up in a small town near Milan. He'd gone to school only through the third grade. He was uh, an amateur mandolin player, (laughs) and uh, he had a a luxuriant mustache. He really wanted to be an artist, but it wasn't happening for him. He was just making ends meet as a handyman. And one of his handyman jobs brings him right inside the Louvre. The museum had recently been dealing with some vandalism. 
including someone who slashed a painting by Ingres. Slashed it, like with a dagger? Yes, slashed it with a knife, yeah. The Louvre had long had problems with security. There were no alarms. Statues were sometimes just sitting there on plinths, not locked down or anything. Thefts were certainly not unheard of. The museum had gotten a lot of flack. And they decide they need to deal with this vandalism thing. And Perugia is one of the people who comes in to help build protective glass cases around some of their most famous works. One of those is the Mona Lisa. Perugia is cleaning canvases for the Louvre and helping to put them under glass. So he's getting a sense of the collection in his day-to-day work. And over time, he starts to form an idea, a patriotic one. Perugia had a misconception, but a reasonable one, that the Mona Lisa was among hundreds of works at the Louvre that had been looted by Napoleon from Italy during his Italian campaign about 100 years earlier. There were hundreds of works in the Louvre collection, many of them on display, that had been looted from Italy. But Mona Lisa wasn't among them. Not knowing that, Perugia comes to a decision. He's going to go into the Louvre and take back some piece of art for Italy. He may have had other motivations, too. Like, it's possible he thought he could sell the art for money. But he will later say that his main motivation was patriotism. And according to the French police, on the evening of August 20th, 1911, he takes his opportunity. Perugia, wearing his worker's uniform, remained in the Louvre after hours, and he locked himself in a closet that was a service closet right around the corner from the Salon Carré where the Mona Lisa was stored. Charney told us Perugia most likely stayed in the museum overnight so that he could sneak out in the early morning before the museum got too busy. Hours pass as he waits in the closet. Perugia stays put. This would have been a very uncomfortable, very sweaty and nervous night. As the sun rises the next morning, he listens at the door for the footsteps of the guard. He hears them pass. The coast is clear. Perugia sneaks out and makes his way to the hall where the Mona Lisa hangs. The Mona Lisa was hanging in a special way to remove it from the wall. You'd have to know how it was hung without clonking the heavy frame around in order to remove it. But Perugia is a handyman at the Louvre. He knows how to do this. Quickly, easily, quietly, he lifts the painting from the wall. Then he carries it into a service stairwell out of sight. Inside the service stairwell, he removes it from its frame, which requires a little bit of carpentry, and he brought some tools with him. And once it was free from the frame, it was much easier to handle. Perugia wraps the painting in a white sheet and nestles it under his arm. He makes his way down the stairwell to a door, which will lead him into a courtyard, and from there, to safety. But when he tries the door, it won't open. It's locked from the inside. Now, he probably felt a a very dramatic moment of panic, but he thought that this might be a possibility, that it would be locked from the inside. And so he had his tools with him. So he places the Mona Lisa wrapped in this white sheet down on the floor beside him, and he kneels and he gets to work on the lock. But no luck. The door still won't open. So instead, he decides to unscrew the doorknob, take it off altogether. He pulls it from the door, puts it in his pocket, and tries the door again. But the door is still locked. 
And now he's really panicking, and then he hears footsteps approaching on the staircase. While he is standing in front of the door, doorknob in his pocket, and one of the most famous paintings in the world right there with him. The footsteps get closer and closer, until... It turns out that it's a janitor who was surprised to see him, but not entirely surprised because it was not unusual for Louvre staff to be locked in at night. We don't know what the janitor made of the fact that the doorknob was missing from the door. Probably the um, Perugia said something, well, I was trying to let myself out, so I unscrewed the doorknob. And the janitor unlocked the door for him and let him out. Out into the courtyard of the Sphinx. From there to the smaller Visconti court, and then to one of the museum's exits. Luckily for him, the guard has stepped away for a moment to get some water. Perugia walks out onto the Quai de Louvre, tosses that doorknob off to the side of the road, and disappears into the Paris morning. And that was how he pulled off probably the world's most famous heist. The wall where the Mona Lisa should hang is empty, but for the four L-shaped iron pegs that once framed her. The painting is gone. At first, surprisingly, no one realizes that anything is amiss. The Louvre was closed to the public that day, a Monday. The guards did note that the painting wasn't in its usual spot. But the first instinct was not that someone had broken in and stolen the painting. The first instinct was that the painting had been moved to either the conservation department or the photography department. A reasonable explanation. And it was only when it was clear that none of these departments had it that people started to panic. The newspapers get wind of the theft on August 22nd, and crowds begin to gather at the Louvre. That evening, the acting head of the museum finally makes a statement. The Mona Lisa is gone, and the museum has no idea who took it. For scholars and for people working at the Louvre, this was um, an unimaginable catastrophe. And in fact, the French word for unimaginable was the lead headline um, that broke the story the next day in one of the newspapers. The international press goes wild for the story. It is a huge embarrassment for the French government. So there was a lot of pressure beyond the doors of the Louvre to solve this case as quickly as possible. The investigators fan out over Paris to question anyone who might know anything. Staff, guards, maintenance people, even subcontracted handymen. On two occasions, Vincenzo Perugia was questioned by investigating police, and at no point did they think he was a suspect. So it was a really botched investigation from the start. Meanwhile, theories and rumors are swirling everywhere. Did the thief take the painting to blackmail the government? Did a journalist steal it just to give the press a sensational story? Some of the guards at the Louvre say they've seen a blonde man standing wrapped in front of the Mona Lisa on numerous occasions. And the museum has gotten letters addressed to the Mona Lisa herself. Maybe someone kidnapped her out of love? The investigators chase down many, many leads. They even end up arresting a surprising suspect, Pablo Picasso. It wasn't totally unfounded. Picasso had actually been involved in earlier thefts from the Louvre. Two Iberian statue heads that were stolen in 1907 
Picasso certainly commissioned theft. He was probably actually involved in stealing it. Up until the Mona Lisa was stolen, this theft had gone unsolved. Picasso had pulled it off with one of his best friends, Guillaume Apollinaire, and Apollinaire's secretary, a Belgian man who was such a serial art thief that he supposedly once said to a friend, I'm going to the Louvre. Can I bring you anything? Picasso wanted these Iberian statues because he just loved the way they looked. He kept them for years, and they helped inspire one of his great masterpieces. But when the Mona Lisa is stolen, the Belgian secretary writes a boastful public account of his previous thieving in the Louvre. He's a known associate of Apollinaire and Picasso, so Apollinaire is arrested, and his good friend Picasso is brought in for questioning. And they were completely terrified, so much so that Picasso denied having ever seen Apollinaire. And Apollinaire was his best friend, and they were regularly spotted hanging out at cafes, and they were, they were local celebrities, so this was very ridiculous. They're eventually released, because it's clear they have nothing to do with this. But when he went back home, in a panic, he and Apollinaire decided that they would have to get rid of these statues, and they put them in a suitcase. They went out at night, and they planned to throw them into the Seine River. But they couldn't bring themselves to do it. They thought they were too beautiful. In the end, they dumped them at the office of a newspaper. So some art has been returned, but the Mona Lisa is still missing. When the Louvre eventually reopens, people line up to see the empty space on the wall where the painting used to be. One person leaves a bouquet of flowers. The press keeps up its heated coverage of the crime and the investigation for about a year, until around April 1912, when the Titanic sinks. Then they turn their focus to that unimaginable catastrophe instead. This whole time, Vincenzo Perugia is still living in Paris, still working as a handyman, and hiding the Mona Lisa under his bed. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Vincenzo Perugia kept the priceless Mona Lisa in a shipping trunk with a false bottom. And he stowed that under his bed. He kept it there most of the time. But sometimes... He would pull it out from under his bed and prop it up on his bed and just stare at it. 
And according to his own reports, he fell in love with it and cast a spell over him. And according to his own testimony, he just couldn't bear to part with it. He barely wants to spend time with his friends. He'd just rush home after work and stare at the Mona Lisa. It was consuming him. And he decides, eventually, that he has to get rid of it and bring it back to his home country, Italy, where it belongs. In November of 1913, Perugia writes a letter to a Florentine art dealer named Alfredo Jetti, Saying, I have the Mona Lisa. He would have referred to it as La Gioconda, as it's called in Italian. And I'd like to return it to the Uffizi Gallery. Will you meet me? It's signed, Leonard. At first, Jetty thinks this is a prank. He almost throws the letter out. What are the chances, right? But he's friends with Giovanni Poggi, who is the director of the Uffizi Museum in Florence. And so they talk about it and they say, well, we might as well hear this guy out. They eventually go together to Perugia's hotel room to see this supposed Mona Lisa. When they arrive, Perugia is there waiting for them. This little Italian guy with a big mustache, <laughs> and he pulls out from under his bed in the hotel um, the shipping container and he opens it. According to Jetty, Perugia pulls out some broken shoes, a squashed hat, some painting supplies, a mandolin. Then he opens the trunk's false bottom and pulls out an object wrapped in red silk. He lays it on the bed and uncovers it. And there is the Mona Lisa. The two men are shocked. Jetty later testifies, to our astonished eyes, the divine Giaconda appeared. They can tell it's the real thing. And they tried to keep a straight face. And they said, um, is it okay with you if we bring this to the Uffizi to have our conservators check it over to make sure that it's in good condition and it's really the original? And he said, sure. <laughs> um, and he lets them leave the hotel room with the Mona Lisa and they bring it to the Uffizi Museum. And the next day, the 11th of December, 1913, uh, Perugia opens the door to his hotel room and there are police there. And he is very confused. He seemed to genuinely think that he would be welcomed as a national hero for repatriating this painting. Perugia is sent to jail. And the word goes out to the world. The Mona Lisa has been found. The Italian prime minister's formal announcement reads, the Mona Lisa will be delivered to the French ambassador with a solemnity worthy of Leonardo da Vinci and a spirit of happiness worthy of the Mona Lisa's smile. But before heading back to Paris, the Mona Lisa makes a tour of Italy. On its first day, 30,000 people show up to see it. And as the newspapers begin to report on Perugia, he sort of gets his wish. The media portrays him as a hero. This is someone who rescued the kidnapped Italian Mona Lisa um, and brought it back to Italy. After six months in jail, Perugia stands trial. He stuck to his story that he never wanted to profit. He just wanted to do this to be a good Italian and to bring this Italian masterwork back home. And it seems to have convinced not only the general public, but also the judge. Perugia gets a light sentence, just a year and 15 days. On appeal, that's reduced to seven months. The Italian state felt like they needed to do something to 
symbolically punished the thief because you're not supposed to steal from a foreign national museum, but they didn't really want to punish him. Perugia is released and hailed as an Italian Robin Hood. We don't know much about his life after that, but he dies a few years after the whole ordeal. The Mona Lisa, meanwhile, returns to the Louvre, more famous than ever. The Mona Lisa, prior to being stolen, was among the most famous works of art in the world, but this really solidified its position. I'm not sure it would have that distinction above other iconic, you know, top 50 famous works of art had it not been stolen. And also had it not been stolen um, at a relatively early time in the history of media. Because the press loved this story. The kidnapped beauty, the Robin Hood thief. Charney told us, we still tend to think of art crime in those romantic terms, though the reality today is much more sinister. It tends to be funded by organized crime or used to finance arms trade or terrorist groups. And it's surprisingly common. There are about 20,000 pieces of art stolen every year in Italy alone. Luckily, the Mona Lisa in France has its own special glass case, its own personal guards, so that today, I think it's impossible to steal. Having said that, you're never supposed to say something's impossible to steal because that's throwing down a gauntlet and there's always someone with too much time on their hands who wants to prove you wrong. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. Special thanks today to Perrin Lumbert at the Bates College Library. History This Week is also produced by Ben Bickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designer is Jonathan Seary. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.